God, we recognize that you provide, maybe not always in the ways that we expect or anticipate or think, but you provide, you have provided, uh, you provide abundantly, and you have uh, toward this project that is not just a project or a fundraiser for us, but is your kingdom coming in a rural area of India for boys, for girls, for a community? where your gospel through a building and through uh, care for boys and through education and nurture, your kingdom will come and your kingdom is coming. We uh, offer and bring together our voices and our hearts uh, toward that end this morning and ask that you would do abundantly more than even our partners and friends in India could have imagined. Bring about your kingdom, shine the radiance and glory of your son in that region and in their lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. We also ask that as we open your word that you would be our teacher, that you would give us eyes to see and ears that are good to hear and hearts that are receptive soil, minds that are ready to receive that which you would have us know and become. I pray and ask as my words are true to your word that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Amen. So we're continuing this morning in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We started way back on August 30th. It may go on forever. (laughs) As we begin reading, remember that the Sabbath for Jewish people then as Jewish people now The Sabbath began on Friday at sundown and lasted until Saturday at sundown. And so the last day of the week, Saturday, was considered the Sabbath day. Jesus was crucified on a Friday morning. On Friday afternoon, they put his body in a grave and sealed it. That's where we pick up the story at Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Listen closely. This is God's word. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body as was customary. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Should have thought about that ahead of time. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, the young man said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, and specifically Peter, he, in other words, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I love Mark's candor. I love Mark's forthrightness. He's the first of the Gospels to write. It's not edited. It's not refined. It's not clean. He's really honest, really forthright, really candid. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't super spiritualize. He doesn't amend the facts to make them more palatable. 
Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, at least not at that time, because they were afraid. And because no one would believe him, of course. The stone had been rolled away, Jesus' body was missing, and there was some unknown dude just sitting there in a white robe on the right side, in contrast to the left side, in contrast to the wrong side. It's an odd comment. On the right side, seemingly minding his own business. Maybe he's checking his social media. He's just hanging out, just chilling, Mark writes. And yeah, the three women were alarmed. Understatement. Don't be alarmed, the young man says. But of course they were alarmed. We would all be alarmed. I would be. Don't be alarmed. Jesus, the Nazarene, who was, was crucified, has risen. And the only problem with that statement is that dead people, buried people, people whose bodies had already begun to decay, don't rise. They don't rise, period. Which leaves me, Shannon, with a whole lot of questions. Recently, just in life and through some processes and interactions and sort of intentional stuff, I've become more aware of how analytical my mind is, how analytical I am. And sometimes that trait can be an asset and sometimes it's a liability. And I've always also been skeptical by nature. And again, that's just how I am, that's how I have been. I don't know why it is, if it's nature or nurture or a combination of the two or something else, I don't know. But it's just the way I've always been and this too is a trait that maybe could be at times an asset but also sometimes has been a liability. Some people just naturally accept what they're told, see, experience, read about as reliable and true. Some people seem to be naturally inclined toward faith and belief. Some people naturally believe, it seems. They trust what people tell them. They go with the flow. Some people are gullible, or at least it seems to me. Some people are innocently naive in a lovely way. And then there are people like me analytical, skeptical, curious, wanting more information, needing more proof. I want to know what happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. I, I, I want to know. I want to know how the Rapa Nui people moved their Mohai statues around Easter Island in eastern Polynesia some 700 years ago with some of those statues weighing as much as 80 tons. I want to know how the folks who built Stonehenge built Stonehenge and what all of the structures that we now know are underneath Stonehenge. We know through ground-piercing radar what all of those and that mean. I want to know how the Egyptians built their pyramids, how they got those massive stones all the way to the top. I want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is today and what happened to it. I want to know how polka music came into being and why it's still a thing. 
I want to know how and why the mullet was ever a popular hairstyle. How that ever got to be acceptable. I want to know how the Golden State Warriors ever signed Derek Fisher to a $37 million contract. And I want to know why people eat lima beans when there are so many other good options out there. But what I really wanted to know at one time in my life was how the son of a Jewish carpenter from the backwoods nothing town of Nazareth that wasn't even on most maps would somehow become the central figure of the world's largest religion and arguably the most influential person in human history. How could that have happened? How could that have happened? He wasn't born into a prominent family. He didn't grow up with meaningful resources or connections. He never had access to any noteworthy learning institution. He never traveled the world. He never wrote a book. He never held a political office. He never ran for political office. He was never given a Nobel Prize. He never led an army. He never served in an army, but instead lived his whole short life in a land occupied by another empire's army. His own people didn't even have their own army, though some of them fomented uprisings, which were always quickly squelched, In fact, he was accused at one time of leading such an uprising, though the charges were false, as came out at his trial, by those who really wanted to convict him. He never raised a hand. He never struck another person. He never displayed a penchant for desire or power, the kind of power that the world applauds, wants, seeks, values. And yet they killed him unjustly without mercy, very publicly, making of him an example, making of him a spectacle, leaving no doubt in anyone's mind what would happen to anyone who dared to oppose or even antagonize the Roman authorities or the religious Jewish authorities, period. And yet today, 2,000 years later, he remains arguably the most influential person in human history. How could that be? What happened? What did happen that caused all of that to come about and for reality and truth and what we know and see and what is today in the world is? Three years into Jesus' public ministry, after growing fanfare, increasing popularity, growing crowds, and accelerating expectations, the bottom literally falls out of his movement. His closest followers and students and many others seem to have expected that Jesus was somehow going to overthrow the occupying government and reestablish Israel's independence, their autonomy, their kingdom. But none of that happened. Instead, he got himself killed. His disciples, some of whom by that time had already betrayed or denied him, now all abandoned him, disappeared into the woodwork, went into hiding, afraid that they too might be rounded up as parties to an insurrection. And the Jesus movement just sort of in history goes quiet. More than that, it didn't just go quiet, it died. It died with its leader. He was the movement. He was the movement. And yet here we are 2,000 years later with our, our calendars grounded in the year of his birth and in a building that's built in his name and to worship him. What happened? 
Well, maybe his closest disciples said to themselves after a while, hey, we could go back to our own towns, to our homes, to our girlfriends, to our wives, to our kids, to our fishing, to our jobs or whatever else. Or we could move forward with this Jesus thing, make up a story about him being alive, continue to push against the Roman government on our own and push against our own Jewish religious authorities and then be arrested and then put in jail and then whipped and beaten and abused and eventually killed ourselves for perpetuating Jesus' vision. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. I don't think so. It doesn't work that way in my analytical mind. So what else could have happened? Maybe the Romans stole the body. Now that would have just encouraged Jesus' disciples. The Romans didn't want to do that. So maybe the Jewish religious authorities stole Jesus' body. But that doesn't make any sense either because they wanted Jesus' body dead and they wanted everyone to know he was dead. They wanted everything that had to do with Jesus to be dead. Not missing, not lost, no mystery, mystery around all of that. Just dead, corpse, body. Well, maybe Jesus' disciples were just confused. They were simple people after all. Maybe they just thought that Jesus was alive again. Maybe since the women said the tomb was empty, that Jesus' male disciples took their word for it, unlikely in that day, and went ahead with the thin premise that somehow Jesus was alive somewhere, somehow, and they just ought to move forward with that really unsubstantiated idea. But honestly, I'm way too skeptical of human nature for something like that. If a person or a group of people are choosing a path forward that is certainly going to be difficult, trying, painful, risky, they're certainly going to want a much higher degree of certainty about the rightness of that path and the benefit of that path to themselves and to the world, mostly to themselves. We are way too self-centered, speaking from, from and for myself, I guess. We, I, human beings, are way too self-centered and protective of our own interests as the human race to launch out on something like that. And so we're left with a few really good options other than the biblical and historical one, that Jesus somehow did rise, that he was resurrected. It actually when you work at it, when you think about it, when you explore, when you examine, when you dig, might just take more faith to not believe than to really believe. But this belief thing can actually be a little scary because it goes against a lot of the other things that we see, know, touch, believe. But it is this Jesus rising is the linchpin of the Christian faith, of the way, of this whole body, not just of believing, but of being and living and existing and breathing. And if and as much as Jesus' resurrection is true, then that reality means a bunch of other things also must be true. If that's true, that linchpin thing is true, then a whole bunch of other good things are also true. And admittedly, a lot of people whose minds are less analytical, skeptical, curious, 
don't need to think through all of those things. Their minds don't require that. But for some of us, we do. And that thinking, reasoning, analyzing gets us to a certain place. There are those who do not need to think about these things. They don't feel like they have to. They do not think about such things. They certainly don't worry much about them. 500,000 Americans have died of COVID during the past year. Millions around the world. Even apart from COVID, we're actually, over the course of our lives, around death fairly regularly. We have known people who have died. We have been with people who have died. We will be, and we will die. These bodies will one day cease to be. That's just reality. Some people have in their minds that all people will go to some place called heaven where people eat whatever they want, are reunited with their spouse or spouses, get to dance or play golf all day where their team always wins, where for some Mozart will always be playing and for others Elvis will always be playing. For a few, they think that polka may be playing. We'll break the news to them later. But all of such grounding, all of such thinking is grounded in what? For a lot of people, fanciful illusions, wishful thinking. But I know people that need proof, evidence, justification, foundation, belief that an afterlife, in other words, a life after this body, really is and will be. I find that in an empty tomb, a missing person who was found, who was seen, heard, touched by dozens and then hundreds is the answer to my questions, that person being Jesus. So that a movement that had ground to a complete stop was the movement resurrected. But we must understand at great risk to all who were involved. And so I have hope, I have hope, for me as one who is highly, again, analytical, skeptical, curious, I have reason and even a firm and certain hope and confidence that Jesus did rise. And because Jesus rose, we not only have reason for hope for life beyond these bodies, but we also have a path for life here and now in these bodies, here in this reality. And we do not need to fear. We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to tremble as the women did. The three women who entered the tomb were afraid at what they saw and afraid of what they didn't see, afraid of what they thought they now knew and afraid of what they didn't know. But in Christ and because of Jesus' resurrection and frankly only because of Jesus' resurrection, at least for me, we can live without fear of death and dying. Like none of us is really excited about that and don't want to have a gruesome death or a long, slow demise of these physical bodies. But we have no reason in Christ to fear death or dying. We can live boldly. We can live with confidence. Just in the past year, I've been with people during the time, at the moment, that they breathed their last. Over the years, I've stood at the side of many graves as the body was lowered into the grave. 
I don't know how people do that without hope. I've only been able to do that with a firm and certain hope and confidence, but not just in the whole and the body and the resurrection one day that I can't see and touch, but also for this life. We can live boldly. We can live with confidence. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to live for ourselves. We can know God now. We can love our neighbors now. We can love our enemies now. We can forgive our enemies now. We can bless our enemies now. We, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, from prison, we can do all things through him, the alive one, who gives us strength, which is what theologians and the scriptures call grace. God's power given to us to bring about what God wills in our lives and in the world that we can't do in and of ourselves or by ourselves. And this thing called grace or God's power is available because it came first in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul talks about in the first chapter of his letter to the Christians in Ephesus. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is available to us now, is available to you, to me. We don't always live into it. Some of us don't even recognize it. But that power, as intangible as it may be, is available to us, not just to raise us one day, but to raise us today, to raise me today, to raise you today. The resurrection of Jesus was not a projection or a hallucination or a metaphor. So often it's made into a metaphor today for new life. But the resurrection of Jesus was not a... Metaphors don't terrify people. Metaphors don't make people afraid. Metaphors don't cause women or men to tremble. But what was going on there was something more powerful than we can ever imagine. And it's not just on one day. I love, like my favorite flower as a kid was an Easter lily. We had this Easter egg hunt at our church every year and I was kind of the militant Easter egg hunter kid. And I'm always going for the super egg, whatever it was called, the golden egg, the treasure egg. Because in it, it had like this little piece of paper that said, you got to have an Easter lily and I got to give that Easter lily to my mom. And I found it every year. I was on a mission. I love, so we do this thing called Easter every year at the time on the weekend annually where Jesus was crucified and then raised but Easter or the celebration of Jesus resurrection or by extension the resurrection of Jesus itself was not only a once a year event something to be celebrated once a year with pastel clothes etc bunnies but a present and ongoing reality that is available to all of us now. For those who will receive it, he will give that power, that life, that joy, that significance. That is available to us. May it be ours, may it be yours. May we live fully into not just an annual celebration, 
but the resurrection today of the living Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Come upon us, God, with your power. Draw us into the resurrection. May your life might not be something just in books, but also and powerfully in hearts, in minds, in lives, in relationships, in the world. Your resurrection in Christ confirmed the salvific power of Jesus' death for us on the cross. Help us through your resurrection power to appropriate your mercy and your forgiveness and to live in the resulting joy and freedom. And may your grace in us act through us to bring about praise for your name in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in the world. And may you be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.